Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Today we're going to talk about one of my favorite things in the universe, the poems of Homer. I can't tell you how much I love them. I think they make life better and more interesting than it would be otherwise. These works have never been surpassed in the annals of human literature, in my opinion. The grandeur and careful design of their architecture, the incredible nuance in the detail, every line and word perfectly placed, the character development and thematic coherence, I can't begin to do them justice here. The poems are, moreover, an entire world unto themselves. You can, you can live in them and think in them and relate so much of your life to them. At least one entire civilization, that of the ancient Greeks, inhabited those poems and was grappling with them even when it was trying to reject them or get past them, as we see in the case of uh, Plato. A wonderful example of this comes from the early Byzantine period, uh, specifically the Emperor Julian. Now, Julian was educated in Homeric poetry, and he fell in love with Homer. And his teacher, his teacher was a Gothic slave, by the way, and he was his instructor in Homer. Uh, and he told him that the world of Homer is basically more real than the one we ordinarily experience in daily life. And so for, there, was no, there was no um, reason for Julian to go to the races because he could experience a better version uh, of chariot racing in the Iliad. And when Julian marched his army into Persia, he reached the walls of the Persian capital, Tesiphon, and his first thought was to hold Homeric games uh, before the walls for his soldiers. Now, the Byzantines didn't inhabit the world of Homer in the way that Julian did, so they had the Bible. But even their very Christian culture could not resist the siren call of the ancient bard. There simply are too many experiences to be enjoyed and thoughts to be had in Homer that you can't get from the, from, from the Gospels or the Bible. And fortunately, many Byzantines realized this. And they kind of ended up with this double culture, you know, having the Bible for some things and Homer and other Greek texts for other things. They preserved the poems of Homer, which is why we have them. And at times, they developed an extensive and sophisticated scholarly apparatus for analyzing and understanding them, including commentaries and lexica and so forth. Today we're going to talk about one of the greatest Byzantine scholars of Homer, Eustathius, who lived in the 12th century and he was also the Bishop of Thessaloniki. He's probably one of the greatest Homeric scholars of all time. And he was an extraordinary person in his own right, as you'll hear. I was fortunate to have the chance to sit down and talk about him with the one person who knows his Homeric scholarship better than anyone else, Bauke van der Berg, professor of medieval studies at the Central European University. Her book on Eustathius is not out yet, but it is finished, and she graciously allowed me to read it. Now, everyone who tries to come to terms with Homer will do so in different ways, and Eustathius naturally approached Homer through the concepts and categories of his own educational background, which were primarily rhetorical. And this pays off handsomely in some areas, but it has blind spots in others, as you will hear. Here then is my conversation with Bauke on Eustathius, 
on Homer. Hello, Bobke, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks so, for having me. <laughs> this is probably the most unusual circumstances under which I've recorded one of these. Um, uh, so just to set the scene, we are sitting in the uh, Dumbarton Oaks Gardens, uh, which is the plus part of it. It's nice. Yes, the other, <laughs> the minus part is that the world is sort of falling apart around us. Um, it's March, what, 27th, uh, no, 17th 17. or something like that. Um, and um, so we are sitting the prescribed six feet apart. Um, and I've sterilized the microphones uh, by, by speaking Gothic into them. Um, I'm told that that works. Uh-huh. Uh, the Gothic, the Lord's Prayer. Anyway, so we're here to talk about Homer and specifically Homer in Byzantium. And I have to say, uh, so I'm not much of a person for poetry, but uh, Homer is an exception. Uh So I have always loved Homer, and I find that just about everything in the world uh, can be found there, expressed in the most beautiful form. And I mean by that both uh, sort of ordinary, everyday kinds of things, uh, like you know the the image of, uh, who is it, someone who's kicking down a sandcastle that some children Mm -hmm. have built on the beach, which is... Like one of the only references to beach culture in ancient Greece, <laughs> um, and uh, so that's the kind of mundane thing. But also for huge, sort of tragic events, um, and you know, given what we're experiencing now, you know, the uh, the plague scene in in Book One of the Iliad, right, where Apollo is sending his arrows mm-hmm. of death, and I think that Homer merely says to describe what was going on that. Uh, there were many fires burning throughout the camp, which they're burning the dead. Right. right. But he just says that, and from that one little verse, you infer, right, all kinds of uh, tragedy and pain that was going on. And I, I think Homer's magnificent about that. Anyway, uh, but we're here to talk about Homer specifically in Byzantium. Um, so, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the just a kind of the social context of where where does Homer belong socially in Byzantium? That is, what what's what's his social footprint? Um, who knew about Homer? Um, how well did they know about his 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 poems, his characters? Um, and uh, just just generally, just kind of if you can outline that uh, parameters. Sure. Well, Homer was part of the earliest stages of education, so it seems likely that anyone with some degree of education knew Homer, um, the Trojan War and the heroes. The Iliad probably more than the Odyssey, I think, especially the first two books of the Iliad were much read. Um, But because of the bias of our sources, we we don't really know how well common people would have known Homer. we know most about the people who were really educated and they seem to have known everything about Homer. Um, but that, that anyone was supposed to know a bit about Homer, there's a good example from the 12th century, for instance, where there is a foreign princess arriving from Bavaria. Um, she is to marry the emperor, Manuel I, and um, she or someone for her commissions one of the most famous intellectuals of her time to make some kind of introduction to the Iliad um, to make sure that she knows at least the basics of what is going on. Right, so she arrives in Byzantium. This is Bertha, right? Yeah, Yeah. right. So you arrive in Byzantium. You're a German princess, what, what? First, so we give you a Greek Christian name. (laughs) Irini. Yes. Uh, Here's your court costume, like put this on. 
and here's your sort of Homer for idiots, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Even though this text seems to, so it's a text by a, a, a guy named J John Zedzis, and it's actually not only summarizing Homer's story material, but also giving an allegorical interpretation of it. So it seems to be have more layers than just being a very basic Homer for dummies. Right. Uh, there seems to m be much more going on. But why would she have uh, needed to know um, Homer? Um, because Homer was such a pervasive part of Byzantine culture, literary culture, intellectual culture, Byzantine cultural identity. Everyone, part of the elite, had uh, enjoyed a thorough classical education, and Homer was, of course, the found foundation for all of that. Right, so it's possible that at uh, the court someone might have said, my, how radiant you are today, Bertha, you're like an Aphrodite. Right. And she would have had no idea who that is, unless... Unless she would have been trained. Yeah. Yeah. Because even in Latin, it would have been Venus and, you know, like... You also that, and I don't know how much mythology was around in Bavaria at the time. Yes, of course, yeah. So what, what, what might she have known? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking um, after our conversation yesterday about how far down the social scale we can, we can take this. Um, and um, I remembered a letter uh, by uh, Nikiforos Vlemidis, uh, this is uh, the 13th century, mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about having gone through the Troad, because he was looking for books, uh -huh. and he, he came across a chapel in the Troad that was dedicated to St. Achilles. Oh, really? That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he talks about how he's drawn in the... Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Anyway, um, okay, and, and obviously uh, people in Constantinople might have known the, some of the characters, certainly the gods of Homer, from the statues that were all about the city. Yeah, if we... I mean, I don't know in how far we can assume that they were always still interpreted correctly, or yeah. um, we know... I mean, there are anecdotes about like the labors of Heracles being reinterpreted as representing Adam and Eve. But, um, yeah, perhaps a big statue of Athena standing. What was it in the Hippodrome? I mean, how would you? It's not unlikely that people would still recognize her. Sure. But in terms of um, knowing the plots of Homer's poems or the, his specific characters, that's a literate activity, right? It's not like people are going around telling the stories of Homer orally. You need to learn to read them. As far as we know, yeah. Yeah. O oral history has, of course, left less of a mark in right. our sources, but it seems that Homer really was a, a, a text to be read. So you have to learn to read not only ancient Greek, but specifically the Homeric... Well, I, it's not a dialect. It's kind of a, a soup of dialects, mm -hmm. right? But but it's a specific idiom, so you, you'd have to spend some time learning it, right? Absolutely. Um, and especially thinking about how the Greek language had changed in the intermediate centuries between Homer and the Byzantines. It must have been quite hard to, to learn to read Homer. Um, but we know that learning Homer involved memorizing large amounts of verses. Um, but then again, there also existed paraphrases in a kind of Greek that was closer to the spoken language right. so that at least people could learn um, the, the story material f in that way. Right. Yeah, there are those. Did they, did they cover the entire text? Um, I think there are some that cover the entire Iliad, but um, there are definitely examples that leave out the gods um, a right. bit like the movie Troy, for instance, that yeah. doesn't have any gods in it. Yes, I think Homer might have been appalled at that. 
<laughs> Probably. <laughs> right? I mean, the Iliad is described as not only the wrath of Achilles, but the plan of Zeus. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and y you can take the gods out, but you have to change the, the plot in some important ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so th this has always struck me as interesting that despite the large, the massive religious change from antiquity, that the educational system, especially the elite, remained pretty similar to what it had been in antiquity. You, you, you start by learning to read and write through Homer. Right. Uh, I, I actually tried this with my daughter <laughs> when I was, in a, well, in a, in a small way. W w when I was uh, trying to teach her to read and write Greek, I just used the names of the gods, mm -hmm. which she knew from these awful uh, Disney films that I had her watch dubbed in Greek. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was terrible. I cringed, but I did it, and it kind of worked. And so, you know, she knew the personalities, and so, mm -hmm. she, you know, and it, yeah, it worked. It like, worked. she learned yeah. the letters that way. Yeah. 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 So, so the people were doing this in Byzantium, which I find odd. So you've got this very orthodox culture, but the first exposure to literacy is like, you know, Poseidon and Apollo. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that part was just not so... I mean, there are the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, who with their more metaphysical ideas pose a more direct threat to the Christian worldview. But I think the Homeric gods were um, made less dangerous by accepting them as fictions, either that or as some kind of remnants of a long gone religion that didn't pose a direct threat to Christianity. Um, so it seems that the gods in that sense right. are are not such a problem anymore you, in other words the byzantines were um secure enough in their orthodoxy that they weren't threatened by these gods y yeah i think right. so yeah, i yeah. mean it's already in the f fourth century when um when there's the church fathers talking about how to study um ancient literature ancient poetry and homer they always talk about problems with morality because these gods they don't have problems with the gods per se, but with their behaviors, because they go around uh, abducting young maidens or um, being adulterers, right. adulterers, and that is the problem. And that is was already a problem ever since Plato. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of religion, I. Right. So they're not a religious threat. They're just no. kind of a bad moral example. Exactly. Especially if you teach that, right. use that to teach. Young yeah, students, right? Um, yeah, I, um, the I recall the, the there's a passage in the uh, funeral oration for Anna Komnena. This is our learned princess of the 12th century, and the the order. Uh, this is Tornikis. He says that uh, her father Alexius Komnenos, the emperor, didn't want her to uh, to learn to read because he didn't want her to be corrupted by what all these gods were up to. Well, she was allowed to study everything apart from grammar because grammar involved poetry. Um, so, oh, she, so, okay. so she was allowed to study other things. Just not, but I mean, you cannot really do anything if you don't learn the basics. Yeah. And grammar and poetry, therefore, were the basics. But yeah, even though she did, still did it. But Tonikis also says that these stories were dangerous, especially for women. Um, so I also think that there's a gender aspect to his. Um, cautions. She doesn't mention anything about this in her own account of her education in her big historiographical work, the Alexia. Right. So we don't, I don't know how, if we should take it at face value. And she does compare her parents 
in the work to various gods and goddesses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the Homeric heroes. Yes. Uh, I mean, the title of her biography of her father, Alexiad, is of course evoking Iliad. Um, because the Iliad in Byzantine readings was an encomium of Achilles, not something that we would necessarily say today, but... Right. Um, and she was writing basically an encomium of her father. Yeah, I sometimes imagine that th that was her revenge <laughs> <laughs> for him not letting her, you know, learn on her own. Um, and yeah, yeah, so the, they understood the, uh, um, the Iliad as a poem in praise of Achilles, um, which is not the usual modern reading. And actually there was an Achilliad, which is a later vernacular sort of romance mm -hmm. poem. Um, but and, and so she modeled her Alexiad, uh, which praises her, uh, her father uh, along those same lines. Um, so let, let's, let's back, ba uh, we'll get back to these more creative adaptations, but I wanted to back up to the, to the classroom mm -hmm. and, just, and, and still talk a little bit more about how, you know, how students experienced Homer in the classroom, how teachers uh, what materials they had in mm -hmm. order to... So what did it look like physically? Like who was doing what in the classroom? Well, I think that it is unlikely that students had a text of their own. So I think we should assume that the teacher had a text and that he dictated. Um, and in dictating then also explained certain words. Uh, so giving the alternative of a certain word in the more... in the spoken language of, or in a more... or in a register of Greek that was at least closer to the spoken language, um, perhaps also addressing things like figures of speech or perhaps even interpretive uh, issues. Um, so it was very much teacher-led, I think. Okay, so uh, the teacher dictates and the students like are writing it down? Yeah, or and, and memorize it. Um, and me yeah, sure. Uh, we'll get to the memorization. But what happens like when all the so the v the Greek vowels had, of course, changed their hmm. pronunciation since antiquity. I mean, this is a this yeah, is something yeah. I encounter in the classroom, right? Whenever right. I teach, well, ancient Greek, I have to switch into this weird Erasmian way of pronouncing it, just so that I can get the vowels, so that my students can understand what vowels I mean. Um, h how did you think they handled that? That's a good question. Um, I mean, there are these later, there are grammatical exercises. Um, called skidography, where they make a play out of this. So they give students a text where these kinds of things are mixed up and they are supposed to correct the misspellings um, and they are a lot, and, and they usually involve this kind of um, how to correctly write something that is pronounced E. <laughs> e, right. Yeah, I remember in school we, we so there were, there were words like, like tihi, right. which can be fortune, walls or um, uh, like the fortif fortifications and a house wall and they're all spelled differently mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah yeah that can result in uh, in some confusion sometimes um, so what kinds of scholarly aids did instructors have um, well their manuscripts probably had scolia in the margins so scolia were most of all remnants from ancient commentaries that had been copied into the margins of medieval manuscripts in the 10th century mostly. But they also had things like the epimerismi. Um, epimerismi are um, some kind of 
grammatical parsing of words or grammatical explanations and definitions. And there were also epimerismi that were specifically devoted to the text of Homer. So in the order in which these words would appear in the text, uh, such a, the epimerismi gave the definitions of such words. So that could be helpful for the teacher to explain how such a, what the meaning of the word was, but also how they were grammatically. Um, in the same sense, lexica would be helpful. And there existed also specific Homeric lexica with right. words only from Homer. Uh, already, I think one of the primary examples that influenced much later lexica was already written in the first century. Right. Uh, and those were alphabetized already in the, f in the first century? No, right? Um, I thought al full alphabetization is something that was introduced in Byzantine times, right? I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what, what sorts of information did the scolia have? So you said that the margins of the manuscript had scolia. What, what sorts of things did they say? Um, many different things. Um, a part of them is literary critical, so they explain the literary aspect of Homer, but there's also grammatical scolia, which do explain the spelling of words or the accentuation of words. or um, They also... Interpretation also more the structure of the text as a whole. Um, yeah, so like a commentary. It's, like it's a commentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. I have the feeling that they don't do not as much explain historical detail, for instance. Even though yeah. later commentaries do uh, pay more and more attention to that too, when the distance between Homer and the world of the commentator becomes larger. Right. So uh, as a student, you, you spend, I don't know how many years, copying out Homer, eventually you you learn a lot of it by heart. When you are later um, an author yourself and you're writing, you know, in all the genres that the Byzantines wrote, you love to slip little Homer Homeric references and allusions into your writing. But of course, knowing Homer by heart allows you to do things with the text, uh, right, that normally we don't do. Uh, but that was fairly common. I mean, in cultures that say that where they you, you, you can expect that your audience has memorized a lot of Shakespeare or knows the Bible by mm -hmm. heart or, or knows yeah. Homer. What sorts of games could the Byzantines play um, by knowing Homer by heart? Well, I think qu these quotations and allusions, I mean, they are not only there to just embellish a text or to just display your learning, but they can also create an extra layer of meaning that um, could either be a serious game or an actual funny game. Um, to return to Anna Komnini, for instance, um, the princess who wrote uh, an encomium of her father, she, for instance, describes the Franks who come to, uh, who are at an audience, have an audience with her father. Um, she describes their speech as unbridled scolding. Um, we are, of course, not trained enough in the Iliad to immediately recognize the illusion, but someone in Byzantium probably would recognize that she compares them to Thersites, which is the Iliad's anti-hero, basically. Um, so in a way, it's a subtle criticism, perhaps, of the Franks. Um, and a similar example we find in Procopius, uh, an author that has puzzled um, modern readers, I guess, because in some works he at least seems to praise Justinian a lot, and then there's the secret history where he is doing the opposite. Um, but in one of his panegyric texts, The Buildings, he calls Justinian the star of the autumn, or autumn star. Um, and the educated reader would immediately recognize that 
this is a reference to Iliad 22, where Homer actually says that the autumn star Achilles is a bringer of evil. Um, so what seems on the surface to be praise might very well be uh, something altogether different. So this is a very um, serious game, if you Yeah, if you so want. long as you know the rest of the verse, or the, or exactly. the next verse. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, these games um, were, were played in antiquity, too, uh, of course. I, I Boy, I just now it occurred to me, I think... In the, in the story of Alexander, Alexander the Great, uh, one of his, I think it's, is it Cletus the Black? I'm not sure. And all these Macedonians have gotten completely drunk, and Cletus and Alexander have this fight, and Cletus just storms out of the tent, and he quotes us some verse from Euripides, which by itself doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, say anything. Yeah. But the next line is like, I, I don't know, something horrible, like you're right. a dirty, you know, bastard or whatever. And Alexander got so angry, like, he, he caught it. Like, he right, knew yeah, yeah. these drunken Macedonians, like, they know their Euripides uh, that <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I, I recall this, uh, there's an anecdote in, in Telos in his chronographia, this is 11th century, where he's saying that a, um, a subtle courtier, at, uh, he approached the, well, let's call her an empress, uh, Sklirana, it's unclear exactly what her status was, but anyway. And he says to her, the there is no shame on Trojans and Achaeans or the line like that it's from Iliad 3 and by itself that doesn't really convey anything and apparently everyone at the court was puzzled like what What do you mean like they didn't know the rest of the verse uh-huh, yeah. which was um, to fight over a woman such as she and they had and he had to explain it and they're like ah very well done well done right? <laughs> uh, but they, did, they didn't know it uh, they probably hadn't gotten their uh, their welcome package. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. um, and uh, but so you've written also about this verse, uh, the the same one because Koniatis uh, uses it, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Koniatis in the writes about his um, experience. He witnessed the capture of Thess- of no, not of Thessaloniki, of Constantinople uh, by the Crusaders in twelve oh four, and he ri- writes about these events in his history. And he describes, for instance, how the Crusaders needed money and to get money they melted down some of the ancient statues that were still displayed in the city. And one of them is uh, a statue of Helen. Um, And he starts talking to Helen in his text and presents her as the epitome of beauty, um, who still could not overpower the Latins um, and the Latins, the the Crusaders. so Goniati says they are, of course, the descendants of the Trojans. Um, right, yeah. So yeah. they are now there to um, take revenge, take revenge. Um, for the fall of Troy by melting down the statue of Helen. Um, and then he continues by quoting this verse that you just mentioned, um, because it, he says these crusaders also would not have known these verses, um, which means that they have no clue about ancient Greek culture in general. They are completely illiterate uh, when it comes to that, uh, which means that they are don't know that they're burning down Helen and with Helen also Homer in a way, um, because the two of course are closely connected. So the the Crusaders do not know their Homer. They don't share the same cultural knowledge as the Byzantines. They are barbarians. Um, and I think this example clearly shows how 
deeply the ancient Greek or Roman heritage was rooted in the cultural identity of the Byzantines because this is what sets them apart from the Crusaders, that they know Homer and that they know the value of Homeric Greek, ancient Greek culture. Yeah, and, and even among the Byzantines, so within Byzantine society, it establishes class uh, distinctions. I mean, I can easily imagine a situation where uh, someone who has gone through this education, you know, will test someone else <laughs> to see whether he has by using one of these verses and see if they catch it. I guess the the examples yeah, yeah. we mentioned show it clearly. It's a kind of inside yeah. joke. It's an ins- yes, yes. It's it's almost like a perpetual test. You're being tested to see if you catch it. Uh, I think sh- uh, you know Shakespeare functioned similarly mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. in uh, English culture for for a while. Not anymore, probably. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that Homer's pretty pervasive in elite writing, and y- you will often find uh, you know Homeric half verses conjoined with lines from the Bible. Exactly, yeah. Which is <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, and sometimes they even know that they'll say, well, you know, as the poet would say like this, or as the psalmist would say like that. Exactly. But that also in- illustrates that there is no direct tension. These texts function in a very similar way as yeah. two foundational texts for Byzantine culture, one Christian, one Greek or Roman, but there's no direct, they, they kind of complement each other in Byzantine cultural identity. Now I recall, now that you mentioned that, I recall that reading some studies, I don't know if it was Anthony Littlewood or I can't remember now, who tracked the frequency of Homeric versus biblical uh-huh. allusions in letters mm-hmm. and then correlated those letters with the you know, profession or <coughs> whatever of the recipient and found that classical allusions occur more when you're addressing sort of secular elites and biblical uh-huh, ones okay, more yeah. in ecclesiastical elites or abbots or whatever. Right. Yeah, I guess it makes sure. sense, yeah. even though everyone would have known Homer, yeah, even, yeah, yeah. even no. the bishop. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah. just a, a yeah. statistical, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do we call that? Statistically significant balance, yeah. right? It's not a... So you uh, tailor it to your audience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so... So beyond the sort of quotation of verses and words and so forth, um, there were many cases where the Byzantines made more sort of creative uh, literary um, use or adaptation of Homeric motifs. Uh, so we mentioned the Alexiad, which is something mm-hmm. that Anna kind of imagined as an Iliad for her father or something like that. Any other kinds of texts that fall into this category? Well, um Many authors, or not many maybe, but there are various authors that adapt Homeric language and the Homeric meter. Uh, I mean, that would not be the first, what they wrote were at, was Edicizing Greek, uh, mm. first of all. But in poetry, even someone like Gregory of Nazianzo already, he writes in hexameters and uses some kind of Homericizing language. Um, and then, especially in the 12th century, it seems that there's some kind of revival of Homer. Um, it has been connected to the more military ideology of the ruling dynasty or of some kind of um, to the to the military heroism of the convenience because Homer then could offer some kind of mode of expressing this military heroism Um, but this is not something only in the 12th century and in uh, the 11th century for instance we have Michael Psellos who compares um, many of the generals in his historical work, the chronography to uh, Homer's heroes, 
Uh, and a nice example, I think, is also Theodor Prodromos, a court poet from the 12th century, who says that actually it would be necessary to revive Homer from the dead <laughs> if one would properly, to properly praise the emperor and his achievements. Um, but since that is not necessary, he will do it in Homeric verses, in Homeric language, and then in a way he becomes some kind of Homer to to the to the emperor yeah doesn't someone say we would need 10,000 homers to properly yeah. isn't it him or it could yeah. be yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a, or a myriad myriad yeah. or something like that yeah um, yeah so I mean so what you said is very important uh, when the Byzantine especially Byzantine literature turns to the um, themes of heroic warfare which they do more in the 12th century uh, because of, in part, the nature of the military aristocracy that they had then, this is not something that, you know, I mean, that Christian texts will help you write. Mm. Um, and so they increasingly leaned on Homer and other ancient texts to, to find the language and the themes and all of that. Uh, also, another thing that, that interests me is the way in which characters in Byzantine, especially historiography, because I've read more of that, are modeled on Homeric heroes sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially Odysseus. Right. Right. Uh, so was it is it Eustathius? So when they're writing about Andronicus Komnenos in the 12th century, mm -hmm. it's either Eustathius or, or Nikitas Koniatis. I don't remember now, but they like draw heavily on this kind of image of this crafty, devious guy. Who it's lies. a very ambivalent image. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because Odysseus lies all the time. Right? Yeah, but I mean they can they're. It also seems that there doesn't have to be one consistent image or interpretation of a figure like that, because even, yeah, Odysseus is a liar, but Eustathios, in his commentary on Homer, he makes Odysseus the consummate philosopher who has reached the highest knowledge of philosophy, and then he actually can compare himself to Odysseus. What, is it because Odysseus has learned the minds of men? Yes, yeah. it's mostly in the Sirens episode, because... Right. Because there, I mean, it's a, it goes far back this whole use of the uh, sirens episode. But so the idea is that Odysseus is the perfect philosopher, and he can listen to the enchanting the song of sirens by being tied to the ship's mast, and the sh the mast of the ship is then the mast of reason. Whereas his companions are lower souls that are not so ph ph philosophically educated, and they would not be able to withstand. Um, the the um, how do you say the it? temptation the temptations the, yeah. of the siren song. I mean that's interesting on Homer's part too. Um, it's a very striking choice that you would because Odysseus could have blocked his ears too. Yeah. Right. Like, what's the point exactly of Odysseus going through that whole dangerous mm -hmm. right experiment, tying himself or having himself tied to the mast and not block simply so that he could experience the song. Yeah, but this the song offers a lot, not only pleasure, but also knowledge. And that is, of course, perfect for later uh, interpretations because it becomes basically a foil for poetry itself, especially for Homeric poetry. It is dangerous a bit because it has all these fictional stories, and right. but it offers also knowledge. Um, so if you are like Odysseus and you can listen to it because you have been trained philosophically and you know how to deal with the dangers, then you can learn a lot from it. Wait, do they compare Homer himself to a siren? Like the poems of Homer are... Well, Eustathius does that in his um, 
in his commentary, in his interpretation of this episode, and he even goes so far as to say that this is how Homer intended this episode to be read. This is Homer meta, meta, it's, it's, yeah, okay, it's meta poetry, yeah. meta, meta poetry. Yeah, exactly. That's fascinating. Well, actually, since you mentioned him, let's dive into Eustathius. Uh, so, can you tell us briefly uh, who he was and what he wrote? Sure. So, Eustathius um, was one of the most prominent intellectuals of the 12th century. Um, born in Constantinople, he went through the normal education, grammar, rhetoric, philosophy, um, and then he became first a clerk in the ecclesiastical bureaucracy, and he also worked as a teacher of grammar and rhetoric, and he was very successful because he was promoted in the end uh, to the position of master of the rhetoricians, which means that he was a professor of rhetoric and the official court orator of um, Emperor Manuel I Komnenos. Uh, so this was in the middle of the 12th century. Um, it was very common for successful Byzantine intellectuals to, at the end of their career, be uh, promoted to a position high in the church hierarchy. And he, um, I mean, he first was appointed somewhere else, but he didn't like it. And then he was appointed to the see of Thessaloniki, um, which was attractive because it was the second city of the empire. Um, he even later became a saint. Um, that but was a few years ago, right? Yeah, well, officially he was canonized in 1988, but he was already depicted as a saint um, That's right. in, yes. in the 14th century. Still quite a bit of a gap between both, but yeah. yeah wait, you, who did that? I don't know. There are, um, I think we only know this because there are frescoes um, in some monasteries ah, that are okay. dated to the 14th century. Saint Eustathius. Yeah. Um, so what he wrote... And was a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, See, so he wrote many letters. They, he wrote essays on various topics. For instance, a critical essay about the state of monasticism in his day. Um, not good. <laughs> he wrote orations, for instance, for the emperor, theological works, sermons, hagiographical texts, for instance, the life of Saint Demetrius, who was the patron saint of uh, Thessaloniki. Um, and then also works of classical scholarship on Homer, um, on the geographer Dionysius Perigitis, um, perhaps on Aristophanes, but we don't have anything le left. We have a introductory, a preface to a, what was perhaps or what was intended to be a commentary on Pindar, um, but that's not left, only the preface. Pindar. Yeah. God's help us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, Pinder seems to have been quite popular. Um, okay. I'm not sure in how far so he was read in school, though, because it, was, it must have been really hard oh, to read Pinder. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes tell grad students that learning to read Pindar will help you do one thing, and that is read Pindar. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he needed a commentary. I mean, good, good for Eustathius. I mean, he's helping out here. Uh, you, you know, it's... <laughs> It's possible that there's no modern scholar that has read all of Eustathius's works. It's po I mean, maybe they they exist, but I, I mean, I, and I include the commentaries. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think it's hardly possible. No, 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 you're right. That's I mean, really something. The commentaries on Homer. I mean, the Iliad commentary itself is four thousand modern pages, and those pages are big. Big, yeah. yes. Four thousand. Yes. And the, 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 they're in four, four volumes, right? Yeah, but that's only the Iliad. That's and just that's just the Iliad. Yeah. And each of those volumes, I mean, you know, you could stop a heavy door with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think yeah, and then I think there are many texts of Bayeustethius that have hardly been read ever. Yeah. 
Um, I found one uh, the last month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the one on... It's got this weird title. It says, On Why You Should Obey a Christian Government. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was in... <laughs> which sounded intriguing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it turned out, in reality, to be something, in, in a sense, even more interesting. It was an, it was an account of the origin of civilization mm-hmm. between Adam and... Well, basically, Christ. Uh, anyway... Really between Adam and, and Moses. Uh-huh. <laughs> and how it is that pe- people... Uh, oh, you'll love this. His argument is that after the expulsion of Adam from paradise, mm-hmm. people just turned to a beastly kind of life. Mm-hmm. And they were brought back to civilization. Or not brought back to... Civilization was developed by these teachers... Ah. Oh, yes. Ah, teachers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And I eventually realized, oh, he's talking about himself. Right. So these inspired teachers, but careful, they're before Moses. So they're not teaching anything, certainly not Christian. Those teachers come later in right. his account, right? They're not even teaching anything Mosaic. Uh-huh. They're teaching what he calls the nomos ethnicos mm-hmm. uh, or um, uh, what's the other word that he uses? Uh, physicos, natural, the natural law. And the use gentium, like uh, the law of nations, just mm-hmm. kind of this, you know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what? And he goes on and on about how they persuaded people to, yeah. Anyway. But in the end, it's about himself. I suppose, yes, because it comes full circle. And apparently, so, you know, um, we have the New Testament, so now we have Christian law, but humanity has sunk very deep into vice again mm-hmm. and so now we need New another teachers. set of teachers right yeah, <laughs> yeah he <laughs> finds many ways and to talk about himself in the end yes uh, anyway so let's, let's get back to the commentaries on homer um so uh, we have an uh, an autograph of the commentary on the iliad right uh, right what does that look like um well it is a big manuscript um i don't know how many folios it would have but written by, I mean, it was most likely written by Eustathius himself or written down by a scribe or yeah, a secretary under his close supervision. Um, and they show us much about Eustathius, how Eustathius worked because it seems that he kept on adding um, material throughout his whole life. Um, and there are additional notes in the margins and when the margins were full, he just pasted an extra piece of paper in I- where he would put even more material yeah. uh, so this seems to be a lifelong project of one of the most um, learned men of the time well he could have used a digital file right oh yeah that would have helped him a lot <laughs> right because yeah. he stuck those little pieces of paper yeah about, no no there's more yeah <laughs> but at least he helped us a bit or he intended to help people a bit by writing some kind of index in the margins that says oh the text here is discussing this uh, Wow. yeah it helps a bit, I okay. guess. Um, and so, w- what's his general methodology? Uh, how does he approach Homer? Um, you know, how, how would you characterize his interpretation? Um, well, it's not like a running interpretation. It's really an encyclopedia of all kinds of learning that are more or less closely related to Homer. Um, so to for him, Homer is it's in itself uh, an encyclopedia of all kinds of learning. It's an idea that was already in antiquity very popular, but that 
that they continue as a because they really think so or because it's a, a topos I don't know but so and in his opinion also Homer is a teacher so everything that he teaches with Homer is something that is already in Homer's text he is just Homer's mouthpiece as it were to bring out all the historical grammatical rhetorical ethical lessons that Homer intended to teach um, I mean it sounds as if he's trying to be humble but in the end I think it's mostly about adding Homer's authority to his own lessons um, okay so Homer's a source of knowledge about like uh, grammar and composition so starting starting at the bottom right like mm-hmm. grammar and composition right like uh, then sort of rhetorical structures right so he talked Eustathius talks a lot about Homer as a rhetorician. Can you talk a little bit about how he interprets him that way? Yeah, well, it makes sense because Eustathius was himself a teacher of rhetoric, a professor of rhetoric, so um, so he makes Homer also a teacher of rhetoric. Um, so for him, the Iliad is a masterpiece of rhetoric, um, and by reading the Iliad, one can learn all the perfect techniques on how to compose a text. But we have to keep in mind that this text will be a prose text written in Atticizing Greek in 12th century Byzantium. Right. Um, So he's really projecting his own ideas about good literature on Homer. Um, And um, so I think that in the end, if we study how Eustathius reads Homer, we will learn a lot about what it means to write a good text in the 12th century. and perhaps less about Homer than we would like. So he goes through all the different categories of rhetorical composition, right? So you find in Homer a speech to exhort someone. You find what do you find? Yeah, also that, but it also is more like Homer wrote his text with all the good rhetorical principles in mind. So uh, variation or right. persuasiveness or acrosis is there. Right? Acrosis is there also. Encomium is absolutely oh, yeah. there. Um, so it is really a handbook on on how to write anything. You've also written on um, the part where Eustathius treats Homer as a guide toward ridiculing someone. Yeah, yeah. This is more like this. Um, w- this is more coming back to the uh, quotations. He shows how how you can twist quote Homer's words with a twist um, to ridicule people for all kinds of things and these are I mean these give us a bit of a peek into maybe the Byzantine sense of humor it's about being bold or being having a big body or having an eye defect or loving wine loving women Um, so I mean this has nothing to do with Homer this is just to play this kind of game um, it's generally kind of cruel humor, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> it's not what we would expect, perhaps, from these. I think the modern idea of Byzantines is that they are so serious and very prudish, no, no, um, no, but no, it's not. No. It's not true. <laughs> oh, no, Even no. this archbishop. <laughs> oh yeah, a saint. <laughs> a saint, also. <laughs> um, I yeah, I sometimes toy with the idea of uh, a book of Byzantine insults. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many. But also they so. Th- in the Iliad, there are these scenes where heroes are insulting each other. I mean, really yeah, harsh. Yeah, yeah. They are killing their enemy and then they are boasting over. And if Stathios thinks this is one of the funniest parts of the Homeric epics. <laughs> 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 uh, 
he says okay. yeah it might be not i mean we he realizes that perhaps for the people in the text this might not be very funny but for homer's audience this was a source of entertainment of laughter yeah um, and those are really harsh things. Well, just think of the nicknames that they gave to their emperors, for example, mm. the, or to their high officials. Right. I, I mean, the, the great the great age of nicknames in Byzantium is it's like the six, fifth, sixth, sixth centuries. You know, where people are called like the, the pumpkin or the eater. <laughs> but even in the twelfth century, right? There's, um, isn't it like uh, there's an official called Agio Theodoritis, and they mm -hmm. called. No, no, Ayo Christophoritis, mm -hmm. Saint Christopher uh, Itis, right? right? And they called him um, Andy Christophoritis, right. Antichrist Itis, <laughs> right? They're just like everybody yeah. is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just make fun of their name, yeah, their physical appearance, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it not very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well unless that's a you do it with a Homeric illusion, then it becomes the Homeric illusions are pretty sophisticated. But the the, the 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 things they ridicule are pretty vulgar in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Though, um, so we have a couple of um, popular chants or poems that were written about emperors, making mm -hmm. fun of them. Um, and I know that of two of them that survive. One makes fun of the emperor Mavricios Maurice, late sixth century, uh, and his family. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, the, the other one makes fun of probably um, Ioannis Tsimiskis and his um, wife, was it Theodora or something like that, um, in uh, the later 10th century. And those poems are really, um, anyway, I mean, I don't remember, I remember some words of them um, now. They're very um, original compound words. Mm -hmm. They're very, very vulgar. Like, think Aristophanes' level right. vulgarity. Um, but very, in, uh, I, th I find them very intelligent. Um, anyway, whatever. Well, making uh, up uh, new uh, words is definitely part of the yes, game. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and Eustathius uh, teaches, uh, gives many suggestions in his commentaries on how to, how to do this. How to make up words. Yeah. To, okay, right, yeah. there we go. Um, and of course, the master of, or I don't know about master, but certainly addicted to insults was uh, Zedzis, who <laughs> you mentioned earlier. Right. Um, yes, we have some time. Why don't you say a little bit about him? Um, so who's this guy, Zedzis? Well, we, we don't really know too much about his life and career. I mean, he also lived in the 12th century. He was a contemporary to Eustathius. Um, and, but most of the things we know, we know from his own writings, but he speaks a lot about himself, so I guess we have learned quite a lot about him. Um, but he... He... Um, seems to have been born into a second-class aristocratic family that had seen better times, uh, so he says himself. Um, he was educated by his father in a quite rigorous way, and then tried to make a career as a man of letters, leaving off his pen. Um, he was active as a private teacher of grammar, and he also competed for imperial or aristocratic patronage for his literary works. and. The main difference with Eustathius is that he he that he didn't really manage to become part of the most inner circle right. of intellectuals. He at least in the way he portrays himself, he seems to have remained always an outsider who is continuously struggling to find students and um, acquire commissions. He seems to have had a me too moment. 
right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was fired somewhere in the beginning. Uh, it's more like a Joseph. Um, yes. Potiphar um, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, that he was fired because the wife of his employer, d- employer accused him of attempting Making to. Making an advance uh, on exactly. his wife. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then, of course, he claims that. That she did it. She did yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, that yeah, he's that very was very bitter about that. Yeah. And, and apparently, it, that could ruin your career, right? Like yeah, he writes about how he even had to sell all his books by the time he got back to Constantinople, which seems to have been uh, one of the worst things. Uh, but then again, he had memorized them already anyway, so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, what kinds of works on, on Homer did he write? Um, a variety of works on different levels. So, he writes this, as we said, this um, introductory maybe work for for Berta, Irini, right. the empress-to-be. Um, so he wrote this kind of works for the aristocracy. There's also a theogony, more easier than Homer, of course, but uh, it's also a summary in verse of the genealogies of the gods. They are kind of edutainment, I think. They are entertaining education for um, people who have time. Um, and he's quite apologetic about the simpl- simplifications of the material and style that such popular scholarship um, involves. Um, I'm not sure if that might resonate with how we in modern uh, yeah. d- academia think about popularizing science. But um, he also produced more advanced scholarly works. He wrote commentaries on Aristophanes, the comic poet, who was also very popular in um, Byzantium mostly for his perfect Attic Greek, but perhaps also for his uh, insults and uh, satire, absolutely. Um, And for Homer, that is also wrote, I mean, he started writing a commentary, a scholarly commentary on the Iliad. We have a long introductory essay in which he says that he will be the first scholar in history to write a comprehensive commentary on the Iliad. Um, But he seems to have never finished it, or we don't have it, but it, it stops somewhere... I think towards the end of the first book of the Iliad, maybe Abstathius outdid him. I don't know. <laughs> he he got his comprehensive uh, commentary yeah. that reached us to the end of the first. Yeah, book. something like that. It's yeah. like those. Yeah, it's like those uh, courses on French history that never get past the Merovingian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and so yeah, so Zedzius. So I've read a lot of Zedzius, and and uh, especially his, his scholarly stuff. He's a very good classical scholar. Hmm. Uh, like his commentaries on Aristophanes, um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think he's a first-rate scholar. Um, he's unpleasant, <laughs> right? And yeah. he, he's intrusive. He keeps talking about himself all the time. Um, and uh, he he also corrected a manuscript of Thucydides. Um, I think, yeah. This was a ninth-century manuscript of Thucydides, mm-hmm. and, and he got access to it. Someone told him to correct it, uh-huh. and he wrote scolia in there. And he's very nasty uh, toward the scribe who wrote it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but <laughs> but he's also nasty toward Thucydides. Right. And and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's the first person I know who uses the expression wooden prose. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, for Thucydides, of course. Right. Well, he yeah. also criticizes his contemporaries for writing bad verse. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And no, he's. I think he's someone who. He resonates. I mean, he's kind of trapped between. 
So what he wants to do, it seems, is the more esoteric philological work, but at the same time, he's having to look for mm-hmm. employed work, pay, you know, right. paid work, um, by writing these popularizing allegories and whatever for these German princesses, or you know, um, just to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems from his complaints and from the complaints of lots of people in this time that it, w- it you know, the, the payoff wasn't what they wanted. Uh, so given the amount of labor that, and, and for, that goes into mm-hmm. the training, yeah. right, that the payoff was very small. And so we have these, this culture of complaining classical scholars. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Or like a freelance intellectuals yes. who hope to have, uh, yeah, yeah, more fruits, to pluck more fruits from their hard work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it is Theodore Prodromos, also from the 12th century, who uh, writes a lot about, yeah, that he's disappointed with the lack of appreciation for his learning um, after working so hard. Um, yeah, so what's striking to me... Um, about figures like Eustathius, but also... Now, there has been some work on Eustathius, and you're about to publish your book on Eustathius. I think that will open his work on Homer up a lot. Um, Mm. But Zedzis in particular and Brothermos are these... I think they're just first-rate authors. Um, Zedzis is a necessary source for classicists still today because for a lot of reasons he preserves... Um, material from ancient authors who were mm-hmm. lost, especially in his histories, the the Hiliades, he right. just tons of stuff that otherwise would be lost. And and modern classicists have to go to Zedis every once in a while, but they have no idea who he is. And there's no book on Zedis yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's yeah. no book on Prodromos. Like no. just saying, you know, yeah. here's here's his life, here's his works, here's right. The the last thing I think for Zedzis is this fifty page article in the in Polywisowa, I mean in, in <laughs> German. I, like that's it mm-hmm. from like oh eighty years ago now. Right. Yeah. And I just find it so incredible, um, unfortunate, but also incredible that with all the skills that we have in terms of philology and te- texts are being edited and so on, that no one is studying these uh, these these figures yeah. who are first rate classicists whom classicists, I think, have to know about. Um, and yet, the modern profession of classics seems to think that these guys are just kind of beyond the pale, like something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this, and you've encountered this, this kind of, uh, well, it's really a bias or prejudice. So what is it that keeps these people outside of the mainstream of, of the classical profession? I think um, it is... I don't know. It has, for Stathius, for instance, has always been said, first of all, that he doesn't add anything to our knowledge of Homer anyway, or that he doesn't do anything new anyway, or that... um, I could say that about most dissertations. I mean, no (laughs) offense, but... Yeah. Anyway. That it's just a... I guess it's also... I I mean, if you are confronted with 4,000 pages of Greek, perhaps it is a bit... But yeah, the idea that that they don't do, they don't add anything of their own. It is strange. Uh, I mean, the Byzantines are responsible for transmitting most of our classical library, um, and Zedis and Eustathius for are an important chapter of the history of the text of Homer and of Homeric scholarship. And 
and also they are classicists they are colleagues of us today exactly. in yeah, a way yeah. and they I, in I a way, way deal with the study of ancient texts in in many ways similar to ours i mean they study antiquity as this other it's not it's a it's a distant past that they admire and that they want to draw benefit from but at the same time they have this natural closeness in terms of language so they have a major advantage o- over us yeah. also yeah um so yeah i don't i mean obviously i don't understand yeah. why we should ignore them but um, I, I think that the the genealogy of modern classical scholarship if you were to trace it back before the Renaissance, which very few people do, mm-hmm. it, these people are major chapters in in direct, right, in the, in a linear continuity that leads to us. Um, and I think that the discipline of classics, which is very old, um, and it it has developed through accretion and you know also new methods and so forth, I think that they are part of its its history in a major way. Mm-hmm but they're not very accessible uh, still, right? I mean, uh, I think none of the works that we've mentioned perhaps have been translated. No, no. Or maybe a few of Zedzi's now, the allegories. Just, which the is allegories. But uh, it is a daunting task, right, to wade into 4,000 pages of commentary in Attic yeah. Greek, right, on Homer. How I decided to do that. You did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, your book will make... Um, that world a little bit more accessible. Um, I, you know, I don't suppose that a translation will come along <laughs> anytime soon. Like, not of everything, at least. Not of everything, no. Um, but I, I have. To, I just strongly believe that scholars who know Greek well enough to read Eustasius, who's writing a commentary on Homer, right, which is an attempt to make Homer relevant. Um, and and interesting to a society that is 2,000 years after Homer, that is, you know, Christian and medieval and whatever, right? That that is fundamental to the pro, pro, um, the project of, of, of classical scholarship. Mm-hmm. And we just, I think we have to admit that. Yeah, it, it, but it goes a bit both ways. It seems that the Addison of Stathios, at least in terms as as classical scholars, they fall a bit in between because the classicists are not really interested in them, but then the Byzantinists also think that... They, oh, that's they, for classicists. That's for classicists. Um, whereas I think both have something to gain there, because, I mean, as, as we discussed, I mean, Statius' commentary says a lot more about 12th century literary culture, textual culture, than perhaps about Homer in the end. Um, yeah. So I think in these texts, classical studies and Byzantine studies, I mean, they, they, they must be... They are connected in their... A text like Eustathius' commentary, in its essence, is both classical and Byzantine. Exactly. A text that's both ends up sometimes being treated as neither, and that's yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so last question I uh, ask my guests um, is uh, recommend two good books. Right. Um, we're staying with Homer. Um, I recently really enjoyed reading Madeleine Miller's Circe. Oh, yes, I Which is that. now being transformed also into a TV series. Right. Yeah, um, and in relation to that, also Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships. Uh, and I think they're also fit in nicely with our discussion because both are retellings or reimaginations of the Trojan War or um, Homer uh, or Greek mythology more generally from a female perspective. Uh, a Thousand Ships relates the Trojan War from an all-female 
perspective. So it is a bit like we get the Homer that we want right, in right. that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Homer being refigured along the lines of things that s- are important in society today. Uh, Miller Cersei was incredible. And, uh, and, and you're right about the female perspective. While I was reading it, I was... So I was not having trouble, but I was trying to disentangle... So there, there are two different perspectives in there. One is because... The, one is the female perspective, and one is the immortal perspective. Uh-huh, yeah, right. Right? Yeah. And they both put her at odds with the mortal men right. that she encounters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I d- and it was very, very well done. I also, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean I also it enjoyed her earlier. Uh, I haven't read that. Uh, uh, the Song Achilles. of Achilles. Is yeah, it, is this good? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I find that in Homer too, the, the bi- especially the bit about the gods. Um, like for example, Athena, in Homer, doesn't come across to me really as a female perspective. Uh huh. Right. That's a goddess. Like, yeah. You, you back off. You, you don't mess with Athena, right? Um, but the thing about the gods is that they are they're both so superior to human beings that we must seem like like he says, you know, like Zeus says that just leaves in the wind. Mm-hmm. Like there can't be anything fundamentally yeah. serious there, right? And, but at the same time, precisely because they're immortal, they like they you, they can't be hurt or killed or anything like that. Yeah. They can't make tragic choices. No. They don't feel the consequences. And they're very frivolous. And it's yeah. human beings who have all the, the pathos and the, right. you know. Yeah. And, and it's like, that. I think Homer nailed that. And that, that is exactly also what is in, in 30. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I saw. We'll not reveal D- the end. Different, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That's a different, uh, yeah. uh, uh, different conversation. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Bauke. This was fascinating. Thank you.